John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. There's a lot of grace and truth moments in life. I've got a video that I want to show you here in a second, but I need to set it up for you. It is a kindergartner's first day of school. He's returning from school, getting off the bus, and his mother wants to record this precious moment for time and eternity. All right, go ahead. Hey, you did it. Mommy? Yeah. Caleb sandwich, by the way. What a Caleb. You can see it on his face as he gets off the bus. He's been waiting for that moment all day to tell her. That was a bad sandwich. I actually heard a little bit of the story. Mom didn't have peanut butter that morning, so she just made a butter and jelly sandwich. So that's the... <laughs> Evidently, you guys share the sentiment. It was a terrible sandwich, by the way. Um, you know, grace and truth, right? You know, he loves her. You can tell there's love in his eyes, but there's some truth out of, out of his mouth. Maybe you have done this to your parents or you as a parent have had this happen to you. You have a child who's just, they've crawled into your lap and they're snuggling up against you and their head is on your chest and they look up at you with those big eyes and they whisper into your ear, your breath stinks. You know what I mean? And it's not like they're going to leave. They're not going anywhere. They want to be there. They want to be cuddling with you. They just want you to know that your breath smells like hot garbage. So as we talk about grace and truth, we're talking about breaking down wrong ideas of Jesus. We have all had some constructs of Jesus that are not helpful. They, they have given us ways of understanding and seeing the world that aren't really that good. And we're breaking those down and we're trying to rebuild an accurate, true picture of Jesus as revealed in the Gospels. And one of the few places that describes who Jesus is, we see a lot of what he does, we see a lot of what he says, but there aren't a lot of verses that say, here's who he is. And one of the few verses that says, here's who he was, is that he was full of grace and truth. And those, those things matter. Breaking down the wrong idea of Jesus matters. Rebuilding the reality of who he was matters because a clear idea of Jesus is compelling. You want to follow that person when you strip away all the junk that people have tried to place on him over the years, all the baggage, all the ways that people have tried to make Jesus about their thing and not just had Jesus about who he was. And once you clear all that away, there's this incredibly compelling person at the heart of all that that you want to follow. And that's what this whole series has been, uh, been about. Grace and truth matter because these two things are true. First of all, Jesus would not be put off by our sin. He would not be put off by our sin. You would meet him or interact with him or walk with him, and you would feel like I've, there's this thing in my heart, in my life that I have to say because you are so holy. I have to say this. And Jesus' eyes would not get wide. He would not look at you. He would not plug his ears. He would just look at you with warmth and acceptance and grace. He would not be put off by your sin. 
Uh, many of you have had the experience of going to a doctor or going to an urgency room where you showed up and the doctor said, we cannot handle your problem here. And you're like, whoa, that must be really bad if you can't handle my thing and I've got to go somewhere with more serious medical equipment or people with more advanced degrees. Jesus is never going to greet you and say, whoa, <laughs> I can't handle that sin. I can't handle that ugliness. I can't handle that darkness. That's never going to happen. But... He would be full of grace, but he would be full of truth, and Jesus would not overlook our sin. He wouldn't overlook it. He wouldn't look at us and say, you know what, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. He wouldn't pretend not to notice. He would notice, and he would deal with it, and he would talk about it full of love and full of an acceptance, but full of truth. And this is so important that we understand that. I think a lot of us are more familiar with a disappointed or dismissive Jesus. We're familiar with that Jesus, a disappointed or dismissive Jesus. In our small group last week, as we were talking about this, uh, Corrine, my wife, brought up the fact that she always envisioned Jesus as this ultra-serious, ultra-stoic, generally annoyed, slightly disappointed, and never laughing, never laughing, which is why there's this fairly well-known rendition or picture of Jesus. This is actually from Steve's office. You can see it as you pass this morning. But it's a picture Steve keeps on his wall, and it's of Jesus laughing. And it's actually pretty rare. If you do a Google image search of portraits of Jesus, most of them, Jesus is very serious. Like someone just told him something that he didn't want to hear, and it's not, very, it's not a very happy Jesus. And there are a few pictures of Jesus laughing. This particular one is by a guy named Willis Wheatley, an artist by the name of Willis Wheatley, and he painted four pictures of Jesus, or sketched four pictures of Jesus. Three of them were stoic, serious Jesus, you know, again, always looking off the camera, hair done just right. Three of them were that version of Jesus. One was laughing Jesus. Guess which one has been reprinted 70 million times? The laughing Jesus, because we're like, I think that Jesus might be real. I think Jesus might have laughed. I think if Jesus might have found something funny, I think Jesus might have looked at people and just shook his head and chuckled because we didn't get it half the time. I think this might have been the real Jesus. And I think a clear image of Jesus is compelling. So we ended last week with this verse, John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep, this is Jesus comparing himself to a shepherd, us to sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. So last week we talked about how hearing Jesus was a posture of the heart. You have had conversations with people that were, he were not hearing you. The only thing that they were doing is waiting for you to stop talking so they could respond. You've had conversations with teenagers and they were not hearing you because the posture of their heart wasn't ready to receive something. And we talked last week about how that's the, one of the most important places to start, that the posture of our heart is meek and we are meekly receiving what Jesus has to tell us. So this week, we're going to more closely dive in on that concept of follow. You need to hear Jesus clearly and follow Jesus closely. To follow Jesus is kind of part of the Christian lexicon. When I say that, I feel like there's probably some eyes in the room that glaze over because we understand discipleship is about following Jesus. The Christian walk is about following Jesus. We're familiar with the terminology. We're, we, we get it. And I think the problem is, is that familiarity, we lose a clear grasp of what we're claiming. We don't really have a depth of insight of what we're saying, what we're claiming when we say we follow Jesus. We've lost the clarity of that picture. Any hikers in the room? Any hikers? Anybody 
willing to admit. All right, so four people. Let me ask it this way. How many of you are like, I I would avoid hiking unless my life depended on it, and even then I'm not sure. How many of you are more like that? No way. I don't want to go for a walk in the woods. Well, hiking is beautiful, and here's why. Here's a picture of Carver Lake Park right here in Woodbury. Um, (laughs) How would you know? You don't go hiking, so you have no idea if that's in Woodbury or not. You have no clue. You just have to take my word for it that I'm lying. But anyway... I love it. My, fa- my family does not, and they're always nervous that I'm going to spring a hike on them, an unannounced hike on them. So literally, I'll be like, hey, kids, do you want to go to Target with me? And they're like, what else does this trip involve? Where, where else are we going? Or I'll say, hey, Kareen, let's, let's go out tonight, just you and me. And she will say this almost every single time. I promise you, I'm not making this up. You can look at her face to know that this is true. She will say, what kind of shoes should I wear? <laughs> I just want to know, is this date going to involve any hiking? This is how they are. They've been scarred, evidently. The comedian Jim Gaffigan says that the first thing you notice when you go hiking is that it's a mistake. <laughs> but I like it. I love it. And the deal with hiking is that you're walking on an existing pathway. Someone has been here before. We're not blazing a new trail. We're not hacking through the jungle with a machete. People have been here before. They have deemed this direction a good direction to go. I want to see what's at the end of this path. Is it going to be a beautiful view, as, such as Carver Lake Park right here in Woodbury? Or is it going to be a waterfall? I, I want to know the curiosity inherent in the human spirit wants to know what's at the end of this path, right? That's why four of us love hiking. The more well-worn the path, the more we assume there must be something good at the end of it because many people have traveled this way before. But sometimes the road is less traveled for a reason. Sometimes one guy had a harebrained idea and he walked that way and blazed a little trail and the next person came along listening to Robert Frost and they got to the end of it and realized it was a dead end and then another person and another person. Some roads do lead to a dead end. But I want you to hold the idea of of trails and paths in your mind because in Hebrew thought, the idea of life was like the idea of a trail or a pathway or hiking. Their thinking would be that every decision is a direction. Every decision is a direction, from big to small. Everything is leading you down one path or another. So there's tons of verses that describe this. Um, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 14. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. So you want to see who are the hikers down this path. If they're not good people, you don't want to go down that path either. And throughout Proverbs, there's verse after verse. Make a level path for your feet, and all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your feet from evil. Uh, There's positive verses too, as Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23. For this command is a lamp. This teaching is a light, and correction and instruction are the way, the path, the trail of life. Proverbs 8.20, I walk in the way of righteousness along paths of justice. This is how I make my decisions. Every decision is a direction. We won't read all the verses, but I I do want to read one that you may be familiar with. Proverbs 14.12, there is a way that appears to be right. I think good things are down at the end of this path, but the end thereof is death. The author of Proverbs. And it's not just Proverbs. They're all over Scripture. Jesus used the same idea. In fact, have you ever thought about the the wide and the narrow? Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road. Because lots of people are walking down that path. That leads to destruction. 
And Jesus says, don't take that path. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In other words, you've got these two images, a wide, broad trail and a little narrow trail. And it's easy to go down this one. We don't have to work very hard. That's where everybody is going. Let's just follow the crowd. Let's just go down this path. Or we can go down the one that's a little harder. You have to clear back some brush. You have to pay attention to where it starts. You have to look a little bit more closely. That's exactly what Jesus was getting at. There's only a few that find it because it's a little bit harder to see. Jesus called himself the way. Christianity in the book of Acts was known as the way. This path, every decision is a direction. Parents, you get that, talking to your children, and you're like, no, I don't want you to go to that person's house, because going to that person's house is not just going to their house. It's not just a party. It's not just a few hours. It's a direction, and I don't want your life going in that direction. Every decision is a direction. Any of you uh, grow up in the country, out on country roads, any of you? All right, about, again, about three. We got a real metropolitan group of people that doesn't like to hike. Interesting. If you have been out in the country in the dry summer, you can see cars coming for miles. You know, you can see the trail of dust that they leave behind them. In fact, if you live in the country, it feels like most cars kind of look like this. You know, they're just always dirty. It's just always the way it is. And if you're driving down the road and you've got, you know, the window down and you've got the radio on and you see a tractor ahead of you, you've got to roll that window up real quick. Why? Because your car is going to look like this if you don't. Because it's dry and it's dusty and things are going to get covered in dirt. It's just the way it is. So imagine this, the dry, dusty country paths of Israel. Now, I know it's not all dry and dusty, but just imagine with me for a second the trails in the land of Christ. Imagine this. It makes sense as a metaphor in a culture that walks everywhere constantly to think of life as a direction, that every decision is a direction. Where does this path go? I can imagine the more well-worn the path, the more you thought, oh, this probably leads to somewhere good. I can just imagine that's the way it works. Hebrew rabbis, Hebrew scholars had a collection of commentary called the Mishnah. It would have been like a Wikipedia for the religious rules. So they had the Bible, and then there's all this thought about, hey, how does this play out in life? And they had collected this in a, in a group of teachings called the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, they talk about what it means to follow a rabbi, what it means that every decision is a direction. And there's this cool quote from one piece in the Mishnah that I wanted to show you where it says, cover yourself in the dust of their feet. So any, in other words, the rabbi walking ahead of you as you followed them, that car driving down the country road, cover yourself in the dust of their feet. Follow them, follow their life, follow their direction, follow their decisions so closely that you're just covered from head to toe in the dirt that they stir up. You may have heard this phrase before. It's been popularized in a couple different settings, but it's a great image when you think about life and every decision being a direction. Cover yourself in the dust of their feet. So it became an idiom for how to follow a rabbi. You followed their path so closely that you were caked in dirt at the end of the day. Now think about what this means. You're walking behind someone and it's all the things in life. You know what I mean? All the daily, minor, small decisions that we make that reflect our heart, that reflect our values. I don't know if you've <laughs> run into this one, 
but this is kind of a new feature because if you go to a lot of coffee shops, well, certainly a lot of places now, and you pay with a card, and they'll have that little iPad kind of thing, and you pay, and then they flip it around, and they're standing right there while you determine what amount of tip you give or don't give. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Now, everybody's a little different. I know some of you have deep thoughts about this. You've thought about it a lot. And you're like, I am tipping them zero because they didn't bring me any food. They're just standing there taking my order. Me, I'm such a people pleaser. I always tip the most you can tip because I think that they might be watching. Now, that little interaction, that's a direction. You're making a decision and it reflects your values and your thoughts. And I realize it seems like a little minor thing, and, and essentially it is, but some of you are like, I don't know what to do here. If you were living in the first century, you would be crowding around your rabbi to see what do they do when they tip? How do they do that? You are covering yourself in their dust. Or how about um, when you forget that you're supposed to meet someone, you totally forgot about it, and they text you like, hey, are we supposed to meet today? And you're like 10 minutes late already, and you're still at home in your pajamas, and you don't know what to do. You say, oh, on my way, which I guess is kind of technically true, because you having vacated the couch is sort of on your way. Or do you tell the truth and say, I forgot, uh, I'll be late. You know, what do you do? And if you were a first century rabbi, you would have followers around you watching you text back that person to see what you would do and you would be covering yourself in their dust or what about writing down on a timesheet that you got to work at eight even though well it's technically 807 if you were a first century rabbi you would have a crowd of followers around you watching that interaction to see what you do in the hundreds of minor situations in life how about a friendship that's kind of gotten stagnant or maybe there's a little tension or some things that need to be worked through and you see a phone call and it's their caller ID. Do you answer it? Do you ignore it? Well, if you're a first century rabbi, you would have a crowd. Can you imagine the pressure of being a first century rabbi where every choice that you made was scrutinized as to its moral value? Pretty intense. Every decision is a direction. Jesus was a rabbi. He's called rabbi in the Gospels. And the Gospels contain lots of stories of Jesus' teaching, which we need to listen to, right? But they also contain dozens of stories that have no editorial comment. It doesn't say why he did this. It doesn't say this was his thinking or this was his purpose. We're just left to speculate. For example, the wedding at Cana when Jesus turned water into wine at the behest of his mother. That text doesn't tell us why. You, if you've been going to church for a long time, have probably heard dozens of sermons as to exactly why Jesus did that, but they're all speculation because the text itself doesn't actually tell us. Was Jesus doing that because he was just listening to his mom? Did Jesus really like parties? Did Jesus really like good wine? We don't know. Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Hey, will you get me a drink of water? And they have this great conversation. But we're not told why he talked to her. We can make some guesses. We're not given any rationale from the point of view of Jesus or from the point of view of the gospel authors as to why he did that. So we've got this situation, no explanation, breaking cultural taboos. Maybe he cares about hurting people. Maybe he's just thirsty. The feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, so many of his healings. We make guesses as to what he's doing, but we are trying to analyze these moments and understand why would Jesus make that decision? Because every decision is a direction. Do you see that so many stories in the Gospels are an invitation for you to follow Jesus? 
to look at his life, to look at his choices and to say, hmm, I wonder why he did that. I'm going to think about that. I'm going to wrestle with that. I'm going to make decisions that try to reflect that. There's an invitation there. Now, we don't have the same situations Jesus was in. We don't have the same resources. But how does the path, how does the way of Jesus work out in my circumstances? What does it look like if, if I, in modern 21st century America, what would it look like for me to be covered in the dust of this rabbi? What would my choices look like? What would my decisions look like? What would my values and my priorities, what would my life look like? There's an invitation there. We have to listen. That's the heart posture. But then we have to follow and that's the orientation of our being. It, not am I doing everything perfectly right, but where am I headed? Where is the orientation of who I am as a human being? Where is my direction? Is it toward Jesus? Or have I traded that idea of following him for some sort of religious checklist that makes me feel good about myself, but the orientation of my life isn't after him? That's a real temptation for Christians to systematize following Jesus into a handful of things that we can feel good about ourselves doing, but the orientation of our lives isn't after Jesus. We're not covered in the dust of the rabbi. We've turned it into a checklist so we can go on with our day and do the things that we want to do. Every decision, great or small, is a direction. So much of our learning is really field work. Learning about generosity is one thing. That's, that's good. But pulling your wallet out and opening it up and giving to somebody in need, that's a different thing. That's a whole different ballgame. Learning about the particulars of forgiveness is a good thing. But looking somebody in the eyes and acknowledging everything that they've done and still vocalizing the words, I forgive you, that's a different thing. And sometimes, church, we have gotten really good at the learning part. We're learning and learning and learning, and let's have another class about it, and let's talk about it some more, and let's get together and discuss it. But we are not so good at the doing part. The substance of learning is in the doing. It's in the doing. Maybe we have gotten to the point where we're hearing a lot, but we haven't really been following very closely. We're not covered in the dust of the rabbi. John chapter 13, verse 17, Jesus says, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. See, there's things that you know that you are not doing. You know. You know what you should do. You know the decisions you should make that send you down a direction, but you're not doing them. We're not following after Jesus. The orientation of our lives is not after him. So here's two clarifying questions we've been wrapping up each service with, each sermon in this series with. Two clarifying questions. One, is your version of Jesus real? Do you have to deconstruct some bad ideas that maybe you've collected over the years? Is your version of Jesus real? And then this question is so important and so clarifying. Are you following him? I wanted to write, are you actually following him? But I don't think we need the qualifier. We just need to say, are you? Are you as someone who says, I believe in Scripture, I believe in Jesus, I believe he, he lived and he died and he rose again, I believe he left a life full of example for me to understand and unpack and live out, are you doing that? Or is this just an intellectual enterprise? Are we actually 
following Jesus? Do people look at us and say, man, you are covered head to toe in the dust of the rabbi? 